Well, good morning, family. And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're very, very glad to have you. Whether you're a repeat visitor, um, whether some of you, like Julia Grant, have been around for a, a long time, it's good to see you all this morning. And uh, we have some folks from Canada with us today. We have some folks from Texas. We have all kinds of folks with us. So very glad to have you with us this morning. If you are visiting, we are working through the book of 2 Corinthians. And so this is an ongoing conversation and engagement. So we're kind of going to get you up to speed a little bit. Uh, but our text for this morning, as you'll see there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Paul writes, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So last week we concluded with Paul's statement in verse 15 of this uh, same chapter. He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. And with this summary Paul lays out a fundamental principle of the Christian faith. And that is that the primary purpose of our redemption from sin and God's wrath is that we should live for a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our text this week, he is addressing a particular area of Jesus's mastery, particularly in the life of the Corinthian church, that they need to submit to and listen to the Lord. And that is the mastery under the lordship of Christ in reconciliation within the church itself. Now, I'm just going to make a side note here that Paul, throughout this section, uses the, the pronoun we. And it could be that he is including himself, as well as his ministry team, as well as others of well, you know, similar apostolic spirit. But I think it's probably accurately described as an authorial plural, which means he's mainly talking about himself, but using a plural for the sake of just writing the letter. So just a comment there that he's going to keep saying we, and I'm going to refer to him as a singular individual, and that's why. So that brings us to verse 16, what I'm calling a flesh judgment. Paul says here, from now on, again, if he's talking about the mastery of Christ and what he's doing in the church and this problem with the Corinthian church that he's had that we've seen over the past couple of months, he says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So what is Paul doing in this verse? Well, in this verse, Paul is talking about two different ways of thinking about people, particularly the church, and two different ways of thinking about Jesus. There's one that he says is according to the flesh, we once 
thought about you and about Christ according to the flesh, but now we don't do that any longer. And he doesn't really define what that is here, but he says there's flesh thinking and then there's not flesh thinking. Now, the word flesh in the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, is used several ways. As Paul uses it here, he seems to be speaking of the idea of what you see on the outside of someone, what what they appear to be according to human wisdom, according to worldly wisdom. And I think this is probably contrasted with seeing in the flesh and then that of spiritual insight or spiritual wisdom. He says, we we once thought and evaluated according to the flesh, but he says, from now on, we don't do that any longer. In other words, from now on, starting at a certain time period, including when he's writing, he doesn't view people this way. He admits that at one time he did, but he doesn't do it any longer. So because of the work of Jesus, he views the Corinthian church and Jesus himself differently than an outward and worldly standard. And we're going to see that this has relevance in both how he engages with the church and also how he thinks about Jesus. For instance, if Paul had viewed the Corinthian church by worldly standards, then he would have, that is according to the flesh, then he would have been done with them, I suggest, a long time ago. I think most of us would be. I mean, it's a church where there's been bad doctrine, sectarianism, dividing up over their different favorite preachers. There's this infighting. They're arguing about their spiritual gifts, their issues of tolerance for immorality within the church itself that he's had to address. If if just taking this, if he just dealt with them according to the flesh, and most of us, if we went to this kind of church, we would probably say something like, well, this isn't a church at all. This is just a debacle. This is a madhouse. But Paul says, this is the church. There was also the allowance in this church of false teachers and even those who undermined his own apostolic authority. And had he judged them according to the flesh, had he looked at them according to what worldly wisdom would say, he would say, this is no church here. This is some religious club under the name of Jesus, but there's nothing of the spirit here. But because of the work of Christ in them and for them, Paul understands that Jesus isn't done with the church. Jesus isn't finished with them. And therefore, Paul says, I'm not finished with you. He continues to view them as the bride of Christ and continues his work in hope. Likewise, at one time, Paul viewed Jesus according to the flesh, according to worldly standards. And and Paul thought that Jesus was a false prophet a pseudo-Messiah working miracles by the power of Satan, a charlatan and leader of the people into damnation. That's what Jesus was about. And we're going to do everything we can to snuff out his name and take out the church. That's how he once evaluated Jesus. And then the final evidence of the falsehood of Jesus to Paul was the fact that he was crucified by the Roman government. And according to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, He was cursed by God himself because he had been hung on a tree. He had been rejected by God and men. So at one point, he evaluated the church and Jesus himself in these two very contradictory ways. But then Paul encounters Jesus. After he encounters Jesus, he can no longer write him off as a false messiah. 
but he recognized that there was more to Jesus than met his worldly eyes. Jesus' teaching, his humility, his servanthood, his acceptance of the outcast and the marginalized were not indications of, of a weak Messiah. These were the indications of the presence of a God who humbled himself to behold the things that are on the earth. In fact, in Jesus, God had moved into the neighborhood and became a man. So an application of what we see here, it is this. We see things around us and the people around us correctly when we do not judge by mere outward appearance and worldly measures, but with the eyes of faith. Not in merely what we see, but what in God is doing. This includes both the church and Jesus. In one another, despite our troubles and failures and difficulties in this church and in the church at large, we see by faith God's work at hand and he's not done. And with the eyes of faith, we see Christ in Christ, God's personal presence and work. So at one time we thought this way, we no longer do. The encouragement to us is let us likewise not judge according to the flesh, but according to the eyes of faith, which says God is at work. He then goes on to comment on the work of God in his fellow Christians. Verse 17, what he says is a new creation. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and again, this, this has to do with him, how he views the church. Okay, so this is all connected. These aren't separate theological truths kind of strapped together. This, this is fundamental to how he views the church and why he no longer judges them according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, literally, New creation. There's no he is in the Greek. The, the, the translators put it there for specific reasons, and we sometimes specifically particularize it as the individual, but it's something more like this. If anyone in Christ, new creation, that's, that's the impact of the Greek. Old, passed away. Hey, look at this. New come. That, that's more what the Greek is about. It's, it's this... Four crisp antithetical statements. And he says that if anyone is in Christ, which opens, of course, the door for slave and free, male and female, young or old, Jew or Gentile. And Paul's use of the term here, if anyone is in Christ, and Paul's use of the term in the New Testament is incredibly robust. It's perhaps the richest and most compact phrase in the New Testament for what it means to be in a saving relationship with Jesus. It isn't just to like adopt Jesus's philosophy of life, to be in Christ, in union with him, is what Paul explains in his letters. So this being in Christ includes a network of truths held together by God's grace. Paul's focus here is on one of those truths, and it's the truth that is networked together with all these other in Christ ideas. This particular truth is new creation. To be in Christ is to be new creation. Now, to understand this, we have to remember the big story of the Bible. Remember that God made the original creation good we come on to the, into the story, humankind corrupts it through sin, and then God promises one day to make it new again. While it hasn't been brought fully yet, those who are in Christ, we're here in the middle of the story, those who are in Christ are already a part of what is to come despite the current experience. So by the Holy Spirit, we have been born again as a foretaste of a down payment of a new creation that is to come. 
And, and that's the shocking thing is we're not as the people of God waiting for the new creation. We are already the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. And this is the reason the New Testament puts such an emphasis on our new life together as a community. This is the reason for the emphasis on relationships of love for one another in Jesus, because we can't separate love for Christ and love for one another. And we are the trailer and advertisement for the new creation that is to come. You know, the little teaser trailers. We're it. We are what shows the world what God has ordained that the world should see the new creation. That's us. So while we are still living in this messed up world, the old age of fallen creation, we are living it as a new humanity who have already been transferred to the new world that God has promised and yet hasn't brought about yet. That's, that's what the church is. Paul says, I, I don't judge by what I see, Corinthian church. I judge and I respond and I minister because you are a new creation in Christ. Now, it appears at this point that Paul has picked up a major motif or theme from the book of Isaiah. For instance, Isaiah 42, 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. And now God's done more than that. He just doesn't tell us. He shows us. And you, my brother and sister, are the new creation to display the creation to come in the body of Christ. Isaiah 48, 6 says, you have heard, now see all this and you will not declare it. From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. That's what we are. And so the application here is that this is what we are as a local church. This is what the church around the world is, in fact. And you say, well, it sure doesn't look like that to me. Well, that's the difference between seeing with the eyes of faith and believing the truth of what God has declared and seeing, as Paul said, through the flesh. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Why? New creation. Notwithstanding all the mess that we are and all that the church has been, anyone and everyone who is in Christ has died with him and is raised from the dead with him as a part of the new creation. Let this form our fundamental view of one another and things change. We view one another differently then, and it's not by what we see, but it's what we know is coming. What then does it mean to live as a new creation community? It means that we live differently as a foretaste of the world of peace and love, which is to come. New creation. And Paul's going to say, verse 18 and 19, okay, you are in fact new creation. Now live it out. Verses 18 and 19, mission, reconciliation. Yes, as one of you wrote in an email, it, it, it could be equivalent to mission impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so verses 18 and 19 are mission made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 18, all this, the new creation, not judging according to the flesh, thinking about Jesus differently. Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
reconciled past tense and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, this is a very, very rich verse. Verse. It's a theologically dense verse, but I just want to point out here that Paul never, ever in the New Testament, nor any other New Testament writer or Old Testament or anyone, no one ever writes theology for its own sake. Paul never gives a theological truth disconnected from the day-to-day life and behavior. This incredible truth is just not to be you know, dissected and understood and parsed out he, he, he wants this theological truth to impact everything that we are as a new creation. This letter isn't a treatise on the new creation, but it's a reminder of what we are so that we will be persuaded to live differently. Throughout the letter, we have seen that the major problem Paul is dealing with is disunity. Right? That's what we've seen over and over again. It's a problem, and they've... They've judged him. They've made accusations against him. They've done all these things. Now he's trying to bring the ministry of the gospel of reconciliation to them by telling them who they are and how contrary it is the way that they're living compared to who they are. All of this disunity, the spirit intends to disrupt so that he can bring peace in his church through the gospel. Paul is giving theology to disrupt the devil's schemes in the church. And this is always the best way to deal with disunity and problems in the church. Not just six easy steps to reconciling and peace, but actually getting the gospel needed in to the situation. And here, the theology he's emphasizing is God's work in reconciliation. He wants them to be reconciled with one one another and with him. And therefore, he's telling them about the reconciliation that God has brought because of Christ. So in regards to reconciliation, Paul writes that all this is from God. He reminds us that Christianity is not a man-made religion created so that we can find our way back to God, a path by which we can find him by reforming our lives and working our way back. That's not what the gospel is. That's terrible news. That's not good news. Rather, Christianity is all what God has already done so that we can be reconciled to him. He is the one to whom we must be reconciled due to our sin. And also, he's the one who has accomplished everything necessary, all the conditions to be reconciled. He's already accomplished them all. We should have fixed the reconciliation and disunity problem, rebelling against God. We should have fixed it, but we couldn't fix it. And so he does it himself fully And completely, and that's what we call the gospel, the good news. The gospel, therefore, isn't an attempt for us to appease, pursue, or make amends for what we have done. But the gospel is the declaration of our being fully and freely accepted and reconciled because of the work of Jesus. And Paul rightly says, you know what this is? This is all from God. It's all from God, in part because the Father planned redemption before time, the Son accomplished redemption in His death, and the Spirit applies it to us in time. This thing we call the new birth. 
What Paul is saying is that all the work necessary for us to be reconciled to an offended God has been accomplished by God himself. He's done everything from beginning to end so that we would be reconciled. Our faith adds nothing to that. It's not like, you know, God went 99.999% and now our faith is, you know, adds the final link that puts it all together or something like that. Our faith adds nothing. God, it is all from God, 100%. Our faith adds nothing to that work. Our response, our faith, our trusting reliance on what God has done on our behalf. It's the acceptance of it. It is only through the death of Christ that God reconciles us to himself. And because Jesus, because of Jesus taking on our due penalty, he does not hold our trespasses, this verse says, against us. That's what God was doing. This is all from God and his work of reconciliation. And he's saying, look at what God has done. Therefore, live out reconciliation in the church. Paul says that he, as well as those who tell others of the good news, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Going and telling people, God has reconciled the world to himself through the death of Christ and now receive that. The word ministry here, the ministry of reconciliation. The word ministry may give some the impression, well, you know, those people in ministry, they're people with authority, they're people with status, they're people like professional pastors or missionaries, but the word ministry here in the Greek doesn't convey any of that sense of dignity. The word ministry, he has given us the service, the servanthood, the servitude of reconciliation. The word is equivalent to a table servant in the ancient world, one who is of the lowest status and position, perhaps even a slave. He's given us this ministry of reconciliation. And the picture here is of a person who is going from table to table in human relationships, washing feet, caring for the needs of, in the name of the master of the feast, Jesus. And in doing so, the dishes are offered. There's the main dish, the side dish. And what is the main dish? The main dish that is being offered to the guests that we are serving at the tables what is that dish called? It's called reconciliation. Being at peace with God. That's what he offers at the table. And it's not for the guests to look at that and go, what a wonderful dish that is. I think I'll throw in a little something. I think I got a snack par here in my, in my toga. And I think I got a little way, hey, honey, did you bring those grapes? Oh, they're squash. Well, it's not con contributing anything to it. It is Faith is the open-handed, empty-handed reception of all that God has done for reconciliation with us. So it isn't for the guests to contribute to the meal by their own good works, but to accept the free gift as offered through the table servant from the master. It is a ministry, he says, of reconciliation, which is Paul's emphasis here. This isn't just something said, but this is something that's lived out. Now here's, this is an important part, I'm going to, Quote, quote, a, um, a, a, quote a commentator um, on this. And here's the point, is that it's not just the offer of reconciliation, it's the example of reconciliation in the church. Here's what Garland says. The ministry of reconciliation, therefore, involves more than simply explaining to others what God has done in Christ. It's more than that. 
The ministry of reconciliation requires that one become an active reconciler oneself. Like Christ, a minister of reconciliation plunges into the midst of human tumult to bring harmony out of chaos, reconciliation out of estrangement, and love in the place of hate. A minister of reconciliation, this is you and me, plunges into the midst of human tumult to bring harmony out of chaos, reconciliation out of estrangement, and love in the place of hate. He has given us the ministry, not just the message of reconciliation, but the service of reconciliation. The application of this is that it is our great honor to be entrusted with this message of reconciliation. It is a great honor to tell people what God has done in Christ for the world. With this message, however, comes the responsibility of ourselves being reconcilers, peacemakers, and a new creational people of God to model it to a fallen world. So Paul picks up yet another metaphor in addition to this table servant, that verse 20 of an ambassador. And this is what I'm calling an ambassadorial appeal. Yes, it's a word. At first I thought I'd make it up, then I looked it up, and with great rejoicing found out it was a word. If not, I just made it up anyway. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore, notice, you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Strange words. He says, you. He's actually addressing the church. We, we often take this whole section as like Paul preaching to the world. And this is, you know, but he's actually applying the gospel and preaching the gospel of reconciliation to the church because the church needs reconciliation. So an ambassador is in the ancient world and to some degree, our own world, an authorized representative of a person in power. But in using this metaphor from the ancient world, Paul is at the same time drawing some very stark contrast between gospel ambassadors and worldly ambassadors. First, ancient ambassadors had a protected dignity. If you've seen 300, you know something of the messenger is like, you, that you can't do that. You can't treat... You can't treat Persia. I mean, to do this is to slap the king, you know, and Leonidas says, this is Sparta. But, but the idea is right. They had a protected dignity. To, to do anything to the messenger would have been an utter slap in, fa in the face to the sovereign, to the king. You just, so they had a protected dignity. It was also understood like this, is, they're not, this isn't their message. They're just the messenger. And for this reason, messengers, ambassadors, were not to be imprisoned for the message that they brought. It was actually against the laws of the Medes and the Persians and everybody else. I mean, if you did it, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have an army march on you. You will, you, will, you will be attacked. And in the ancient world, ambassadors were carefully dealt with, whether you agree with the message or not. So that's the first thing, is that ancient ambassadors had protected dignity. Second, ancient ambassadors were ordinarily sent by the inferior, inferior nation to the superior nation, ordinarily. 
They would do this as the inferior, as a sign of friendship and goodwill to establish a relationship with them, an alliance to say, don't kill us. We're, we're with you. We're here. It was a kind of a bowing of the knee. Nations would send ambassadors to Rome for appeal. Rome doesn't appeal to anyone. You don't, you don't have decrees and edicts from Caesar coming through his messenger saying, please, you guys, just listen. <laughs> just let's, let's reason together. Please, I don't want to do this. I don't want to hurt. You know, please, if you think about it, you know, Rome doesn't do that. There's no appeal from the sovereign. The sovereign gives command. The sovereign just threatens Caesar sends decrees. Caesar sends governors to lord over it. He doesn't send send ambassadors to kind of negotiate. These governors were to be submitted to without resistance. You resist, you pay the price. So ancient ambassadors had protected dignity And they came from the inferior to the superior. And here's where Paul completely turns it on its head. In contrast to the ambassadors, so somebody says, well, he's just using a metaphor from the ancient world, this kind of job, and he's just conveying this. No, he's actually turning the whole metaphor on its head. In contrast to that protected dignity, remember that? You don't do anything or that sovereign will come and crush you. In contrast to that protected dignity, Paul speaks of how God's ambassadors have been imprisoned, beaten, maligned, accused, and abused for their delivery of the message from the sovereign of everything that he had done for the purpose of peace and reconciliation on their behalf. God is allowing his ambassadors, his ambassadors. He is not like the worldly kings. He is not like Caesar. He is allowing his ambassadors to suffer scorn, mistreatment, dishonor, and assault both inside and outside the church. While other ambassadors wore gold chains and pendants as tokens of wealth and power of their kings, Paul's chains were made of steel and he bore the tokens of abuse and scarring and servanthood and humility and patience in the scarring of his body. And in contrast to the inferior appealing to the superior, here we have God as the sovereign king who longs and is pleading and appealing to the human race for reconciliation. God making his appeal through us. We implore you. We beg you. We plead with you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He pleads Paul pleads on behalf of God and God in Christ with the nations. That's what he is going around doing. Yes, he commands all men everywhere to repent, but he's also doing so with appeal and pleading. He's going around saying, God has done this. Now accept the terms for peace. And his terms are, I have done everything despite your rebellion and offense. I have paid the complete and full price by the life of my own son. Now accept peace. 
In other words, here's a different God king than what they know with different kinds of ambassadors. Through them, God was appealing, begging, imploring to be reconciled by the work of Jesus. Paul does not demand different treatment. Don't you know who I am? God is going to destroy you. He travels at his own expense, yet considers himself to have an enormous privilege of being an ambassador of Christ and to suffer for him because he is representative of a humble and cross-bearing Savior. Yes, Jesus will come in victory with his glory of his Father and the glory of the angels, and he will crush his enemies. But until that time, his ambassadors say that God has done everything. And God, through us, is appealing to you to be reconciled because of Christ. We may think of God as if he is a tyrannical despot, arbitrarily demanding his way out of petty and picky desires. But instead, here we see a God revealed in such a way that he and his messengers work differently than human tyrants. He humbles himself to reach out to the fallen human race and calls us as his servants to suffer disrepute and dishonor in imitation of Jesus to save the world, be reconciled to God. And now verse 21, Paul summarizes that ambassadorial appeal in this way. Verse 21, what's been called the great exchange. Verse 21, for our sake, and he's repeating this again, and it's a dense piece of a theology, but he's, he's repeating again, this, this is the message. This is the, the thing that the sovereign king is announcing to the nations. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul summarizes this section saying that for our benefit, God put the responsibility and punishment of our sin onto his son. Our sin, past, present, and future, onto his son. And his son was the one who knew no sin of his own. The purpose and guaranteed outcome, according to this verse, is that we would become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become something. Not just reconciliation, but transformation and change. The purpose and guaranteed outcome is to become the righteousness of God. This happens two ways. First, it happens judicially. And that's what happens at the moment of the reception of the message of reconciliation in Christ. When at the table that dish of reconciliation is partaken of at that moment, judicially reconciliation and righteousness happens. Judicially, that all of Jesus's righteousness at that moment is credited to our accounts, not just our account wiped clean, but all of his credit, all of his perfect obedience, all of his obedience to the law, all of that is transferred to your and my account. So it's not just we start off with a you know, a blank slate, get our, our debt canceled, but it actually gets imputed, infused. No, it's not, scratch that term. Imputed, I was going a different direction, and that's a bad direction to go at this point. But it is an imputed righteousness. It is granted. It is fully credited to the account. And it's so credited to our account so that there is no single 
ounce of wrath remaining for us from God forever. And what this does in being made judicially righteous because of the perfection of Jesus credited to our account, this opens the way so that he can adopt us as his children. We become friends of God and his promise that he will never abandon us because of our sin. He cannot abandon us. Unless he becomes a liar. He cannot forsake us. He cannot hold our sin against us judicially. Because it's paid in full. And that would make God a liar. It would make him unjust. That's a remarkable thing. So he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him judicially. But then there's a second thing that happens. The second way that we become the righteousness of God, which I don't think is fully what this verse is talking about, but I'm including it because it's a larger biblical doctrine. The second way that we become the righteousness of God is by our being transformed into the righteousness of God, being conformed to the ethical standards of God's holy law, the law of love for him and for our neighbors. This means our actual progress and holiness and being peacemakers and reconcilers and forgivers and Pursuing sanctification, righteousness, growing over time, truly and really, which will be completed when Jesus returns. The gospel is that not just that we're forgiven, but that we are also being transformed after his likeness. And so in application and heading now to the Lord's Supper, seeing what God has done. Seeing what God has done. First, we remember that our standing with God and your standing with God is totally and completely accomplished in the sin-bearing Savior that we have in Jesus. It, it's, it's paid in full. It is completely accomplished, 100%, not 99.9999, and then there's that contingency of what I do or what I don't do or how much I believe or whatever. It is the reception of the good news of reconciliation. It is the reliant trust in what he has done. Nothing we have done, are doing, or will do separates us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, according to Paul in Romans. Jesus paid it all. We accept it by God's free offering at the beginning of our Christian life. We accept it and then we live according to that day by day. The second thing we see here is that our being accounted as righteous is the energy behind our becoming righteous. Why do I want to be more like Christ? Because he made him who knew no sin become sin for us. That I might become, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the energy behind it. It's not to get God's favor, get God's love, get God's reconciliation, get God's smile. Get a, It's all God. And now we bask in that and therefore we have energy behind now I want to love. I want to pursue righteousness. There is work to do. There is a God to love. There's self-discipline to exercise. 
There is the spirit to walk in. Yes, we are accounted righteous. And now by grace, we are becoming righteous. I would not be faithful to the text if I didn't stop this morning and say to you who are not Christians that God has done something incredible and offers it to you. Not that you could pursue God and find him, not that you could, you know, have a path by which you pursue religion or Christianity or any of that, but that God has already 100% completely done everything necessary for you to be reconciled to him. You can't add to the cross. You can't add to the resurrection. You can't add to the righteousness of Jesus. And what good news that is, what could we offer anyway? And now I appeal to you as if God were pleading through me, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Accept his righteousness. I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the table serving you because here's the fact is, if, you, if you're not a believer, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, God's wrath abides on you right now. Like his fury is hanging by a thread. And if it falls on you apart from Christ, there is a fury and a devastation and a destruction that the Bible gives us glimpses and hints and pictures of, but is, is more horrific, I think, even than, the, even than the explanations. But, it, but, it, but it's, it's primarily an appeal for relationship. Don't, don't just try to get a, you know, get out of hell free card. It's not just about escaping hell. It's about knowing God and what he's done for us. So I appeal to you, if you are not in Christ, believe in him. What do I need to do? You need to receive the free gift of God's work of reconciliation through Christ. Well, what else do I have to know? I don't know. Come on in. We'll work through it together. Say, well, I don't know enough. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know my Bible enough. I don't know this enough. I don't. Well, that, that's the starting point. But what you can know is if you put your faith and trusting reliance in Jesus right now, today, everything between you and God will have been settled. Everything. And then we'll start working on getting it settled between us. Giving us the re- ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray, please. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the apostle, his willingness to be an ambassador and your willingness to be a sovereign that is unlike the ambassadors and sovereigns of this world. Thank you for your word. Lord, we appeal to you to show us more of the grace of what you've done in Christ. We pray in Jesus.